now that it's out this time, I, I can't promise, but if there is, I'll relay the story. <laughs> relate the story. So uh, in Genesis 15, we're going to start... Uh, um, uh, this is a promise by God to Abraham. Uh, but uh, what happened in chapter 14, just to bring you up to speed so you kind of know where Abraham's at the beginning of 15, he had this war with the kings, and we talked about um, there was uh, four kings against five. They had this battle, and then you find that uh, Abram has uh, 116 men that are tra uh, trained by him in his household, and uh, he goes to war, and he uh, gets Lot and his uh um, belongings back, but he doesn't take any of the spoils from the king because he doesn't want the king ever to come back and say, hey, um, I made you. That way everybody knows that God made Abram um, rich and powerful and all these sorts of things. So um, as you see in, in the case of, of many people in the Bible, he has this thing where God has uh, granted him victory uh, he's used his talents and abilities as as a Christian, uh, you know, as a as a believer in Christ or a believer in God to to do these things. But after a victory, we see starting in the uh, 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 chapter 15 starts by saying this. Uh, this is 15:1. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abraham in a vision, saying, "Do not fear, Abram. I uh, I am a shield to you. Your reward shall be very great." And, and I think that, uh, just starting with that verse to begin with, I think what has happened here, there's not a lot of blanks in the, the narrative here, but why would God come to Abram and say, hey, um, in a vision saying, fear not. So, two things here. This is the first time in Scripture you, you see that um, the phrase, the word of the Lord, came to somebody, and it's also the first time that it says, fear not. And I think uh, what, what happened is, is after this great victory, that maybe Abram had a little bit of fear. You know, what if that king uh, gets his armies to come together and comes back after me? What if uh, down the line something goes wrong and, you know, they do say that Abram did get stuff from him and it wasn't all God? So this is a natural thing. I think uh, you see this after um, in the... Uh, uh, the victory at Mount Carmel when when the prophet is he's he's won this tremendous victory and then he's running away and hiding in the mountains and thinking oh there's nobody like me so sometimes after this great mountaintop mountaintop experience people have this downtime I think that's what's happening so God takes this opportunity to come to him and he says the word of the Lord so it doesn't tell us how that came whether it was incarnate or whether you know later there's going to be a vision but uh, or he's in a vision, I'm saying, uh, he's in a vision saying, fear not. So the word of the Lord came to him in a vision, and he said, I'm, a shield to answer, uh, I'm your shield, and your rewards shall be very great. So that's kind of the setup there. And then uh, Abram and the Lord uh, have this dialogue in the vision. So uh, verse 2, Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me since I am childless and the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus? And Abram said, Since you have given, me no, given no offspring to me, one born in my house is my heir. Then behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, This man will not be your heir, but one will come, who will come from forth from your body shall be your heir. 
And he took him outside and said, Now look toward the heavens and count the stars, if you are able to count them. And he said to him, So shall your descendants be. And then he believed the Lord, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. And the Lord said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldees and uh, to give you the land to possess it. And he said, O Lord, how may I know that I will possess it? So he said to him, Bring me a three-year-old heifer and a three-year-old female goat and a three-year-old ram and a turtle dove and a young pigeon. And then he brought all of these to him and cut them in two and laid each half opposite the other, but he did not cut the birds. And the birds of prey came down upon the carcasses and Abram drove them away. So kind of a lot happens there in those few verses. So the Lord says, do not be afraid. Your reward shall be very great. So Abram remembering from chapter 13 that, hey, I'm going to give you this land. He, I don't think he's doubting God uh, at this point, but um, there's a real um, natural tendency to ask how for us. He may doubt, I'm not sure about that, but Abram's asking a real practical question. He says, Lord, uh, how, will you, how will you do this since uh, the heir is Eleazar of Damascus? So what he's saying is the Jewish tradition, somehow Lot's gone, so Lot won't be it. I don't know why he doesn't name Lot, but he says, the master servant, my house is going to be my heir. And uh, that's what he's thinking. Eleazar is a cool name, by the way. I tried to, tried to convince my wife to name my son that and then my daughter, my grandkids, but it just hasn't worked. So, you know, we'll see in the, we'll see in the generations coming up. <laughs> Uh, and then Abram says, since you have not given, uh, you've given me no offspring, no one born in my house will be my heir. And not only is this, um, everybody who, who's married couple usually wants to have kids, or at least back in this day and age. And so he's, he's saying to God, hey, uh, you've given me no offspring. Who's going to be my heir? And, and, and this is important societally. It's important, you know, part of the marriage relationship. So Abram's asking a real, real heartfelt question here. And so then God answers him. He says, Behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, This man will not be your heir, but one who has gone forth from your body shall be your heir. And this is cool. He took him outside and he showed him the heavens and he says, count them if you're able and so shall your descendants be. And you think about it, I, I don't know, I hope you guys have done this, just looked at the stars, uh, uh, the sky on a really dark, starry night. The sky is so layered with stars. Even now, uh, I read a thing that said that there are 30,000 named, labeled, and mapped uh, stars. And that's the tip of the iceberg. There's billions more out there. So with all of our technology, they've only labeled 30,000, and that's just the, the, the touching of them, billions more. So Abram had to be out there where, you know, and in Wyoming, if you've ever camped or something, uh, it's, it's nice. You see, when you get out of the city, there's so many more stars because there's less light bouncing up. So Abram had to just be overwhelmed by looking at the sky and going, wow, my descendants are going to be like that. That's a big promise. I can't imagine what it what it would have meant or uh, imagined to him, but that's really cool. Uh, and then here's the, the, the pivotal verse. Then he believed in the Lord, and he reckoned it to him as righteousness. So Abram believed what God told him. 
And that was counted as righteousness to Abram. This is important. This is the crux of the Gospel. This is, this is the, the bottom line message of, of our salvation and why God came. Because um, people incorporate with faith things that aren't there. And it's important to know that Abram's righteousness came from belief, not his works. Just like our belief in Jesus Christ and his work on the cross came from our belief, not from our working towards it uh, to God. And that's one of the differences, I think I said this the other day, one of the major differences between biblical Christianity and all the other world religions that I know of, all world religions say you must work to get good enough to get to God. Biblical Christianity says God did all the work to come to you. Abram heard a promise from God, hasn't seen it yet, and he believed that God would do it. Yes, Abram, you've got your righteousness. Just like we believe Jesus did a saving work on the cross and we have resurrection because Jesus was resurrected, we have eternal life because we believe in those things. And it's important not to inject work in there in any way. It's not that our lives shouldn't reflect that we've got that saving grace in us. But this is one of the most simple things in the Bible where you see, hey, this is, this is what the Gospel looks like. And the Lord said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldees, and I give you this land to possess it. And he said, how will I know that I possess it? And I think, again, Abram's not second-guessing because his belief was already recognized to him as righteousness. But just like us... Um, you know, adults, kids alike. Um, how will I know? How is this going to happen? I think that's a question. Because if, you, um, if, you, if you've had kids with you and you say, we're going to go do something fun later, they're going to ask a million questions. What are we going to do? When is it? How long will it be? What's, who's going to be there, right? Same sort of thing. Abram's just like, okay, so um, how is that, that going to work? So, so God doesn't give him an uh, ins and outs answer of here's how I'm going to play it out. God's going to seal the promise. And here's, here's what he does. And he, and, and he says, bring him, bring him the animals. And uh, uh, he said to Abram, bring him a three-year-old heifer and a three-year-old female goat, and then a ram and then a turtle dove. And so uh, what he did is he brought these and he cut them into two and laid them each half uh, on each side each side of each other, but he did not cut the birds. So what the text doesn't tell you and what Abram would have known is that there's a tradition of making a covenant or a contractual agreement with somebody in this culture, and this is how they did it. This is how they made a covenant. So they would have, they would have cut the animal, whatever the animal was, in half, and they would have been on either side of it, and then they would have looked at each other, spoken the promise, and then weaved themselves in between the, the cut halves of the animals. So you're, you're, you're making a, a promise that you're going to uphold this and you're going to make sure that you keep your half of the bargain or you will end up like this animal that's cut in half laying on the ground. It's, so it's a pretty, it's a pretty street, steep contractual obligation. It's not like uh, I, uh, I once had a lawyer tell me that uh, the non-compete uh, clause I signed was probably not worth the paper it was printed on. A lot of contracts in our society are like this. A covenant has much, in this society, had much more weight. So Abram would have understood that this is what the Lord's doing. This is what the Lord's up to. He says, take these things, make this so we can, we can put this uh, covenant out. And then 
What happens then, starting in verse 11, the birds of prey came down upon the carcasses and Abram drove them away. So what's happening in that verse is uh, Abram did this. He's ready for the covenant. He's ready to look on his side of things and ready for waiting for God to come. And uh, he's just waiting. And so obviously, um, if there's a dead animal somewhere out in the desert, um, birds of prey are going to be coming, right? You're going to be having uh, uh, buzzards and whatever comes. So Abram's waiting for God to show up and he's chasing off the birds of prey. Birds of prey smell really bad, by the way. I don't know if you guys know that. (laughs) So uh, he spends all day chasing the birds of prey away in verse 15. Uh, Now, when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram. And behold, a terror and great darkness fell upon him. And God said to Abram, Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, and that they will be enslaved and oppressed four hundred years. But I will also judge the nation in which they serve, and afterward they will come out with many possessions. As for you, you shall go down to your fathers in peace, and you will be buried at a good old age. Then, in the fourth generation, they will return here, for the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. So, um, well, uh, it's interesting in verse 12. So the sun goes down, so the birds of prey are probably going away. Abram, Abram falls into a, um, a great darkness. Terror fell, upon, uh, uh, terror fell upon him. So commentators call this the dark night of the soul. I didn't find, I didn't really see anything biblically. I googled it and looked up some stuff, and there's um, uh, what the commentators call the dark night of the soul. There was a lot of weird stuff. There was a lot of uh, Catholic stuff. There was a lot of New Age stuff. There was a lot of, um, it, was, it was, it all seemed like voodoo to me. Uh, and uh, I'm not sure that the Bible ever talks about it. So, so if you ever Google that, I would say that it's, uh, it's kind of interesting, but uh, it's one of the places it seemed like there was a lot of stuff written on, but it really wasn't biblical. So um, what we can tell is that he had terror in his soul. And for whatever reason, I don't know if God brought that along, if he was having a bad dream, if he ate too many pepperonis, uh, but he had terror in his soul. And I think that one of the things is, if you've been walking with God for a long time like Abram, um, it says this very clearly that he's had that. And I was thinking back about life. I've, I've had a few experiences where you're, you wake up from a sleep and you're just like, oh my goodness, what happened? And seems like the whole spiritual world is crashing uh, down upon you. Um, I wouldn't read more than the scripture has into it, but I'd say this is a real thing. And this, uh, it, it gripped him. So whatever darkness fell upon him, uh, and it doesn't say that uh, the terror went away, but in 13, it just goes, he goes on to list what's going to happen. So, so what's happening here in, in response to Abram's question is God is giving him the prophecy of what's going to happen. And we see in the rest of Genesis, we see everything that happens, everything that God said is going to happen play out here. So Abram gets this very clear prophecy of what's going to happen Well, he's having this dream state with God. So that his descendants will be strangers in a land that's not theirs, that uh, the nation will judge them, but they'll come out with many possessions. Uh, and he tells Abram, that you're going to live to a good old age. Abram ended up living to 175. Now, I don't know. At 46 years old, 
If I live to 175, I'm going to be really, really cranky. <laughs> I think my back popped when I sneezed the other day. Man, must have, Abram must have been in better shape than me. That's a different story altogether. But in, uh, in verse 16, then he'll, uh, the 14th generation, they will return, uh, for the uh, iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. So, uh, so God gives Abraham, uh, Abram in response to his question, how will I know this? He gives him an answer. So then going on in uh, 1517, it came about when the sun set and it was very dark. Behold, there appeared a smoking oven and a flaming torch which passed between the pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram saying, to your descendants, I give this land and from the river Euphrates as far as the great river um, to the... Um, Abraham saying to your descendants I give this land from the river of Egypt as far as the great river Euphrates to the Canaanite and the Canaanite and Kohathite and the Hittite and the Perizzite and the Rephuim and the Amorite and the Canaanite and the Girgashite and the Jebusite so uh, it's really interesting what happens in verse 17 that uh Remember how I said in the covenant, when, when people made a covenant, that both people passed in between there? Understand, again, that the, the concept of faith or belief gives you your salvation and your faith. Abram doesn't pass in between the pieces to make the covenant. God alone makes the covenant. God alone comes down with the oven and the fiery torch, and He passes in between uh, uh, the flaming torch passes in between the pieces. Again, telling us pretty clearly that God is making a covenant to the people of Israel, to Abram, Abram specifically, and to his descendants. But since, like a contract, when you sign a contract, each party in a contract has obligation. You're going to do this, I'm going to do this. You're going to pay money for you to execute this. This is not that kind of contract. Abram makes his covenant, or God makes his covenant, seals the covenant. It's with Abram, but it does not require Abram to pass in between there and be perfect and carry out every bit of the covenant. It's interesting how that works because as we see going forward, Abram's going to make mistakes. So, and I think the reason that God does it that way is because he knows Abram's going to make mistakes. So when God makes the covenant with Abram, he makes it as much with himself that he's going to carry through with this covenant. That's important because at no time during down Scripture does God come down and say, you're descendants of Abram, you got it wrong, I'm withdrawing my promise. You see, all through the Old Testament, God continue to keep his promise to the children of Israel that they fall away and he bears with them, brings them back by whatever means. And even to this day, I would imagine in 1948, I don't know the history on that, but I would imagine there would be a lot of uh, uh, end times people looking at that going, wow, Israel, is, Israel has been reestablished as a country in 1948 and that's no big deal. I think that probably is part of God's promise still being carried out to the people of Israel in our modern times. That's not a biblical thing. That's what, what, I, uh, <laughs> what I think based on what I've seen. So that is not a scriptural thing, just kind of a cool little thing. So as far as that, God makes the covenant to Abram, but Abram doesn't enter in the covenant the same way. 
And then he get, tells them about the land that he's going to give them. And then it just kind of ends with the list of people that, uh, uh, that are, he's going to get the, the, the land where they're at now. Those, those um, places that he named are just places where um, the people live, the people at that time lived, who they're going to have the land from them. But then it gets into uh, chapter 16. And so this is after the promise. We don't know how much time has passed. Uh, you know, the, uh, the text just goes from one thing to another. And so verse 16, uh, or chapter 16, verse 1 says this. Now, Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne no children, and she had an Egyptian maid whose name was Hagar. So Sarai said to Abram, Now behold, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Please go into my maid, and perhaps I will obtain children through her. So Abram listened to the voice of his wife, Sarai. As you read those two verses, you just want to say, Abram, no, don't do it, man. Just don't do it. Because you know that this situation is not going to turn out good. There's no way um, having two wives is going to work out good. But a couple of things to note that... Um, she had no children. And remember, Abram believed that he was going to have all these. And so a couple of things happen here. She's already thinking. She has a maid who's Egyptian. And her statement in chapter or verse 2 is, Now behold, the Lord has prevented me from having children. I think maybe this is a little bit of a stretch. Um, I don't know that to be sure. Maybe he has. But... But remember, God's given the promise, and he has not fulfilled it like that. So she starts wondering, how is this going to happen? Just like Abram did. And whether Abram shared all, all his uh, experiences directly with her or not, we don't know. But what she wants is to have a child. What, what married couple who can't have a child want to have one? So she starts to think, I'm going to take action. And this is the same, uh, the same sort of thing. I mean, if you, if you look at just from the beginning, the, uh, the, the account of Adam and Eve, um, the, the serpent says to Eve, you will be like God if you eat the apple. And that in, infers that God, who is good, is withholding something from you. He is not giving you something so you must go get it yourself because he's withholding it from you. That's kind of the connotation I see with the, what the serpent says. So I, I think maybe that this is the same line of thinking that uh, Sarai gets into because she's thinking, well, I don't have a child. This is God's fault. I can go get it on my own. That's the root of sin. When the promise has already been given, and if we know God and trust God and we're patient with God, we know that he's going to carry out his promises. Therein lies the human challenge, right? How many of us are really patient in waiting for God's promises to come to fruition? Um, I am not. I, you know, sometimes I, 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 there's situations in my life or other people's life that I'm ministering to, and uh, I know, I know in my heart that uh, uh, God is going to do something. Uh, whether it be married couples or individuals or whatever. And so since I have this feeling of, I know that you're going to repair this, God, sometimes when it's been six months and things haven't happened, I'm like, I'm, I've got angry at God. Come on, man, how long do I have to bear with this? 
How long do I have to see the pain of these people go forward before you do your thing? And so, so I don't think that Sarai is right to have that. I'm saying that I think it's common probably in all of our walks as Christian people to know that God's got something for us but have trouble squaring away patience and promise. And so as I studied this out and thought about it and did some writing, there's, uh, it, it, was, it was really challenging to me, this particular part, because it's really easy to look at this and look at Abram and Sarai and go, you were doing so well. How come you dropped the ball? But there's so many times in my life and the life of other people that where this is, this is how we as humans sometimes operate. But the really cool thing that I took out of this is there, there's an ultimate, whether you're Eve or Sarai or you and me, that when we make these mistakes, there's a way that God looks at us that we never see ourselves. God loves us with a love that sometimes we can't even understand about ourselves. So as, as we look at this story and go forward, try not to... Try not to vilify Sarah and Abram for having the same challenges we have because God has the same love for each of us. And there's no way that God could love any of us more than He does right now. So as we go through this story, try not to shake your head like I did. Because I think that um, what happens going forward, having that in mind, is that Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. And I think any smart man in most situations is going to live, listen to his wife's counsel. Unless it's to bring another woman to your home. That's probably not a good time to listen to your wife. <laughs> That's probably a good time to check her temperature, take her to see somebody. Anyway, uh, <laughs> after Abram had lived 10 years in the land of Canaan, Abraham, Abram's wife, Sarai, took Hagar, the Egyptian maid, and gave her to uh, Abram as his wife. And he went into Hagar, and she conceived, and when she saw that she had conceived, her mistress was despised by her in her sight. So it happens. Tells us ten years had passed since he's been in Canaan. And, uh, hey, here's your wife. Notice that she says that. As you go through Scripture, in case I forget this, she Sarai says, here's your wife. Scripture never refers to Hagar as his wife. Scripture refers to her as the Egyptian woman or the handmaid, never his wife. And that, that there's a clear distinction there because his wife is Sarai, who is the wife of the promise, um, and Hagar is not part of that promise. So it's a, there's an important distinction in there as far as, uh, that, that I thought anyway. And uh, so what happens is, is Hagar is conceived, and uh, she was happy. And uh, so, what happens? Sarai starts to despise her, to hate her. Of course that's going to happen. There's jealousy and misunderstanding, and why did I do this? And grr, because she's having a child now. And so here's what happened. Verse 5, Sarai said to Abram, May the wrong done to me... Uh, done to me be upon you. I gave you my maid into your arms, but when she saw that she had conceived, she was despised in her sight. May the Lord judge between you and me. But Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your maid is in your power. Do with her uh, what is good in your sight. So Sarai treated her harshly, and she fled from her presence. So this is a, uh, um, this whole thing is a, uh, um, a, a pretty good example of really bad husbanding. 
Um, uh, I mean, this is <laughs> thousands of years removed from Ephesians being written. But I, I think in the beginning, Abram listened to Sarai when he shouldn't have. I think there's also another distinction in here that's important. When you see Abram working in the will of God, you see him building altars and you see him in prayer and you see him worshiping. In this case, you do not see that. So although there is no inference in the, in the text here that um, Abram had lost his faith or anything, that's not the case. But you see when he is specifically in prayer, when he's building altars to the Lord and he's intentional, things go God's way and things go well. There's a conspicu- what I would say a conspicuous absence of Abram's worship and prayer in this particular situation. And so... First of all, Abram should have not listened to Sarai and brought another woman into their marriage. That's just a bad idea. Um, uh, and so then when she conceives, uh, of course, uh, she turns it around and says, the wrong done to me may be done to you. So is Sarai there talking about, so the wrong done to me that, hey, you went and... Uh, made another woman pregnant or is it the wrong done to me that I haven't conceived and she has I I am a little unsure about which particular thing Sarai is talking about the wrong done to her maybe the adultery there's any number of things in the list and so uh, Abram's got a bad situation on uh, on his site and she says may the Lord judge between you and me so I, I, she's, she's mad at Abram, would see that, she, you know, she's mad at, seem that she's mad at the Lord. And, and Abram just derelicts his duty here. Your maid is in your power, do with, do with her what is good in your sight. So she treated her poorly. So, so let's say that Abram made the mistake and, and he, 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 took, he took Hagar and she conceived and now he's got the situation. At the very least, he just should have stopped and brought both of these women before the Lord and prayed it through and worked something out. I mean, you know, theoretically, first of all, he should have said, hey, let's be patient and wait on the Lord. He should never got in this situation. If he's in this situation, he should have stood up he should have repented, done that sort of thing, and worked it out. Instead, he just washes his hands and say, do whatever you want, and which is not great because now he's got his wife Sarai and the woman who's pregnant with his baby, and this is not going well. So uh, Hagar leaves. <laughs> Seems like a good time to leave. So uh, after Hagar is treated, treated harshly, she left from there. And in verse 7, Now the angel of the Lord found her by the spring of water in the wilderness, by the spring on the way to Seur. And he, and he said to her, said to Hagar, Sarai's maid, Where have you come from and what are you doing? And she said, I am fleeing from the presence of my mistress, Sarai. And the angel of the Lord said to her, Return to your mistress and submit yourself to her authority. And moreover, the angel of the Lord said to her, I will greatly multiply your descendants, and they will be too many to count. count." And the angel of the Lord said to her, Further, behold, you are with child, and you will bear a son, and you should call his name Ishmael, because the Lord has indeed uh, given heed to your affliction. And he will be a wild donkey of a man, and his hand shall rest against everyone, and everyone's hand shall rest against him, and he will live in the east uh, of all of his brothers. So, 
uh, pretty easy to see what happens there. But it's, it, it's, it's interesting here that um, the angel of the Lord came to her, and he's having a conversation with the angel of the Lord. And uh, most of the commentaries say that this is, uh, this is again, a pre-incarnate Jesus Christ. Uh, can't be 100% sure, but that seems to be what the consensus is. And, and she is having this conversation. It's cool that over and over again in Scripture, you see that God is having conversations with His people. We call it prayer. Um, you know, God is not necessarily showing up to me in visions or uh, uh, an incarnate, which probably is okay because that would probably scare me a little bit. Um, but it's cool that she, she, He gives this promise to her also. And it's, it's pretty cool that you'll bear a son. His name is going to be Ishmael. He'll be a donkey of a man. There's lots of jokes there. I, I promised I would make none, so I'm, I'm doing good, pretty good. And, <laughs> uh, and this is, uh, every, his hand will be against everyone, and everyone's hand will be against him. Again, this is a prophecy that is true to this day. Uh, reporters call it the uh, um, Israeli-Arabic uh, uh, conflict. It's, it's going on still to this day, and... Uh, has been messy since the beginning. So, um, verse 13, Then she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, You are the God who sees. For she said, I have been, uh, I have, re- I, oh, have I even remained alive after seeing him? Therefore, the well was called Beer Halab, Bortai, uh, behold, it is between Kadesh and Bered. And Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram called his, uh, the name of his son, whom Hagar bore Ishmael. And Abram was 86, year old, 86 years old when Hagar, uh, when Hagar bore Ishmael to him. So, so again, this prophecy to Hagar, it's interesting that you see it carried forward. And you see her return. It doesn't say anything more about uh, uh, whether or not she had trouble with Sarai. But you do see the promise come, come together. He does get the name Ishmael. And it tells us, just so we have even math going forward, that Abram's 86 years old when he has a child born to him. And so that they must be in better shape then. I can't imagine having a toddler now. <laughs> so as you... As you uh, as you think about this and you look at these passages, there's just that cool play that God has given us grace through, grace through faith. That, that, uh, that passage that uh, Abram believed and God reckoned it to him as righteousness. The basis of our gospel. It's really that simple. Just believe, as we look at the stories of these people, we should, uh, the people in Scripture, we should uh, emulate the best things that they do. We should uh, uh, avoid, uh, avoid the bad things that they do. And I think more than that, when we look at the people around us who are in the situation in chapter 16, like Sarai and uh, Abram, and they're making these mistakes, like God, we don't have to like their sins and mistakes. We don't have to uh, agree with them but we should be praying for them and trying to bring them back to God just like God brings them back to himself. So that also is the the crux of the gospel. So next week, we'll go forward and uh, we're going to see that uh, Abram's going to have circumcision and more fun stuff is going to happen in his life. The Old Testament is always a lot of, well, it's interesting. So let me pray. (laughs) Father God, we just uh, thank you for your word. Thank you for the opportunity to gather together. Lord, uh, I just uh, thank you that you keep your promises. Uh, 
Uh, thank you that you uh, have promises to us, Lord, uh, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection, your promise that you will never leave us or forsake us. Lord, we thank you that you keep those promises and that uh, we do have you not just in eternity, but uh, here on earth to live life and to talk to. Lord, pray that we would uh, look at other people and uh, look at their sins and trials and look at them with love and uh, like you, um, not be okay with their sin, but uh, love them and help to get them to repentance and uh, a different life. Lord, I pray that uh, as we go that we would enjoy uh, just studying your word and being close to you. In Jesus' name, amen.